It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants Mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. A later start today because General Manager Dave Gettleman, Assistant General Manager Kevin Abrams, having their Tuesday press conference. This is only the recap, folks, of free agency. We're going to have Dave Gettleman and Director of College Scouting, Chris Pettit, with us on Thursday at noon, and we'll again come on right after that press conference. And maybe we'll give you a little bonus that day. We'll take you till 2 um, as we start probably somewhere around 1230, 1245. And that press conference will cover the NFL draft. Joined by Lance Meadow, I am John Schmuck. Lance, good afternoon. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. As a reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live is part of the Giants Podcast Network, presented by Investors Bank. You can find the archive of this show and all of our programs at Giants.com slash podcast on the Giants mobile app and on all your podcast platforms. Well, you... If everyone was listening, it was streamed live on Giants.com. Lance, not a whole lot here that we had already kind of known and chewed on. I guess we can go back and forth as per our usual format here. I'll start here. I thought the most interesting thing from looking forward is, you know, future financial planning. And Kevin Abrams basically said that they did have to do some things they wouldn't normally do with their contracts, you know, void years. They had to renegotiate a couple, you know, at least according to reports that were on the roster. So, you know, he talked about doing things that maybe they wouldn't normally have to do, but they thought they saw a bit of an opportunity in what could be a depressed market for the team to be aggressive, and ownership was behind that. And he said, look, next year, depending on where the cap is, he does expect it to be again. He said the word he used, lower next year. We don't know exactly where it's going to be, and Kevin made the point that it's going to be dependent on state laws, how many people get into a stadium, the, you know, the pandemic, all these things that nobody can control, so nobody knows. But he did say next year could be a little bit challenging, but he thinks in 2023 and beyond, uh, the Giants should just be fine cap-wise. And Lance, that's because that's when those TV con he didn't say this, I'm saying this, that's when those TV contracts start to kick in, and all of a sudden, the cap starts to go up a little bit. Well, he was referring to the economics of the NFL. I mean, I think that's the best way to sum things up. And the economics of the NFL are expected to improve in the upcoming years because of the TV contracts that you mentioned. And overall, the country returning to somewhat normalcy and every team having the revenue streams that they normally tap into. So I think it's fair to assume that in three to four years, you can project that most teams will have a little bit more flexibility than they do now, and clearly the cap will continue to increase, which was the trajectory before, of course, the pandemic hit. I think the other thing related to the economics that he pointed to, and this is just a general school of thought that I think most NFL executives will tell you, even though you go into an offseason, and if you go online, people project about this team has X amount of dollars of cap space, most executives look at cap space as something that evolves very frequently, which means you can have $10 million of cap space on Tuesday. By Thursday, it may jump to 15, depending on the moves you make. And I think while Kevin Abrams didn't flat out say that, he, to me, alluded to that by saying, hey, going into the offseason, they may have not had an overwhelming amount of cap space on the surface, but they never felt as if things couldn't be done 
to present themselves in a position to be aggressive and make some of these free agency moves. So this is why you can't get so caught up in the numbers that are projected online because all it takes is restructuring a contract here or there. You make a trade. You don't re-sign a guy. And in the blink of an eye, cap space can dramatically change. Or you get Leonard Williams off a franchise tag, things yeah. like that, where it can change in a minute. And again, that might put you in a tougher situation in future years, depending on how you do those renegotiations and things of that nature. Well, it's a give and take type of mentality. Absolutely. And the Giants, to the point I made earlier, Kevin did say they did some things that they normally wouldn't necessarily do, but they had to given the salary cap situation. So I thought that was important. And then the other thing I'll point out, Dave Gettleman said they liked the value they got on all those free agents based on the type of player they were, the type of position they played in the market and where those contracts have been the last couple of years. He was pretty happy with the value that they got on the guys that they signed. Lance, what was your number one takeaway? Well, I think related to that, they talked about the meeting with Kenny Galladay, and obviously Adoree Jackson also was somebody that visited the team facility, but they emphasized the fact that not only did the Giants organization want to get to know Kenny and clearly check him out medically speaking because that was the most important element, but they indicated that Kenny Galladay also wanted to get a feel for the Giants because when he was going through the free agency rounds, he probably wasn't sure exactly where he was going to land. And part of that is, how do you feel about your teammates? How do you feel about the coaching staff, the direction of the organization? So it was just as important for Kenny Galladay to visit East Rutherford, New Jersey, as it was for the Giants to get Kenny Galladay into the building. I think that was somewhat of an emphasis that they pointed out during the course of the presser. And related to that... They were asked about how they weighed the draft versus free agency, and Dave Gettleman gave a synopsis in which he said, which is no different than how the process has played out in previous years, but normally they'll go through the free agents, they'll have a board for free agency, and they'll also have the beginning stages of their board for the draft, and it's not that they're targeting specific players, but they look at it more from a positional standpoint, John, where they determine, well, the defensive line class is pretty deep in free agency, maybe we can help ourselves there. It's not as strong in the draft. And they go through position by position to determine where do you want to be aggressive in free agency? Where do you think you can get good value in the draft? And that determines the ebbs and flows of both of the processes to determine exactly do you want to do more of the heavy lifting in the former versus the latter and what comes up in the NFL draft. Yeah, and Zach Rosenblatt asked a question. He tried to get Dave to admit the team had a needed edge rusher. Dave did not take the bait on that. No, not at all. Yeah, <laughs> He said he was very happy with the guys they had. He, he actually did not mention Odenabo, later added him. He mentioned Ryan Anderson, Zimenez, Carter. So that's the group they have there. And he well, but John, really... real quickly, yeah, not please, to cut you off, he emphasized, as I've been talking about on this show multiple times, he did, the first thing he mentioned, to your point, was Lorenzo Carter and O'Shea Zimenez, they're happy with their rehab progress, and that they look at those two guys as key components sure. to bolster the pass rush unit, which clearly was hit hard by the injury bug last season. And he also mentioned Odenabel, one of the additions, by the way, they like him as an inside rusher as well. They could slide him inside in some of those situations too, which is something we talked about here two years ago as more of an interior rusher last year more of an edge guy he was actually more productive and Dave made this point as an interior guy which is absolutely correct one other point I want to make Lance in terms of those guys coming into the building he emphasized that it was really important and I know you referenced it too that Ronnie Barnes the Giants head trainer and of course uh, Dr. Rodeo who's their you know lead doctor for them to give the stamp of approval including on the Kyle Rudolph foot thing which came up late in the process so that group signed off and were comfortable on all three of those guys in terms of 
their health. So despite the fact that Jackson and Galladay, what did they play, combined eight games last year, Lance, something like that? In that um, ballpark. So they were happy with their health, and they feel confident that they're going to be healthy going forward. And there's nothing wrong with that because he even mentioned it was a bit of an old-school flavor and flair to yeah. free agency, right? Because normally there's such a rush to sign guys at free agency that you have a conversation with the agent, the player gives the thumbs up or the thumbs down, and then you get to the contract negotiations. But this was an opportunity, which is rare in this day and age because, as I mentioned, it's such a quick free agency process, especially during those few days of the negotiating period leading up to when you could officially sign a contract Lance, where they guy, had guy, the luxury. Guys are that. agreeing before you're even allowed to have him sure. in the building. <laughs> yeah, well, that's more of a reason why why Dave Gettleman was emphasizing, as well as Kevin Abrams, who actually I believe was the one that brought it up, that yeah. Galladay wanted to visit as much as they wanted to see him. So, and, and so did Jackson, by the way. Seems correct. Him. So what it means is, is you need really both parties to want to meet halfway because 100%. the player could turn around and say, hey, I understand the Giants want me to visit, but the bottom line is I've got other lucrative offers. Those teams are not going to wait for me. I've got to make a decision. I don't have that luxury. Galladay and Adore Jackson, they dictated the terms of their free agency process, and they said, hey, I'm going to go visit, and if other teams are interested in me, they're going to have to wait to negotiate on my time. And once again, if you were to go in previous free agency Periods, I don't know if these two players would have had that opportunity to be patient. It worked out that way, and the Giants benefited as a result. Well, and I think the motivation to Lance is, and again, this is kind of maybe it's an assumption on my part, um, but the players are probably willing to come in and do that because they knew the contract they were going to get from the Giants was probably either a longer-term deal. You know, we were a lot of one-year deals out there in the wide receiver market this year. They were probably in theory, could have been the best contract they could have gotten. So in the spirit of trying to acquire that contract that they found most desirable on the market, they were willing to take that extra time to come in and see what the Giants could do. Because the Giants probably said, look, you know, if everything works out, we all like you, we'd be willing to maybe do X for you. And the player's like, well, I really like X. You know, I'll, I'll be willing to go in and do that. But, you know, they know on the side that I have other teams offering me X, Y, and Z. So that's the motivating factor to take that extra time if the team, uh, to your point, Lance, is willing to go where the player wants to go for the contract, if, let's say, another team was offering the same exact thing as the Giants were without those strings attached to the visit and the medical, they might have just been, all right, I'm going to sign the other deal. It's much less of a hassle. But that wasn't going to be the case this year because of the depressed market, which, to your original point, is why they're able to do this in an old-school way. Well, the preliminary conversations that you're hitting on that happened before the visit where sure. you talk to the agent, right, and you give him a feeler and say, hey, pass on to your client that we may be willing to go three to four years if the medical checks out. And then all of a sudden that perks up the client's ears and they say, sure, I have no problem hopping on an airplane and going to East Rutherford, New Jersey and spending a few days out there. The other thing that I think helped, maybe not so much with Kenny Galladay, but at least with Adoree Jackson is, he did have a very strong relationship with Logan Ryan. Logan Ryan has publicly even come out and said that the coaching staff of the organization was listening to him and willing to allow him to do a little whining and dining. So it doesn't hurt when you know a player that's in free agency already has some connections to either the coaching staff or a very vocal player like Logan Ryan. And if he's willing to go to bat for you, then I also think the willingness of the player to come in and talk with you probably increases. So I think that factor helped. They didn't bring that up in the free agency presser. Nobody actually specifically asked about 
Logan Ryan and his influence. But, you know, I had a conversation with Logan Ryan on Sirius in an interview. He made that very clear. He was more than happy to be aggressive, and he liked the fact that the franchise gave him that flexibility. So I don't think we can overlook that. I think that was another element in play to help foster those meetings. Yeah, last thing I'll bring up from the pressers, Lance, and then we'll get to your calls. We're going to have Ben Solak from the Draft Network uh, joining us at 1.30. We're going to do a lot of uh, second and third round potential picks, day two and three guys today, to give us a little bit more depth in this draft class. The last thing I'll, I'll mention, Lance, is that they talked about Devontae Booker, while he why he was a priority. And this is something we talked about here, that Dave Gettleman basically said, look, he's a three-down back. And we talked about how impressive Booker is as a receiver and as a pass protector, and he has the size and the strength to be a, a short yardage back. So he checks all those boxes, Lance, and can fill all those roles, which really makes him a true backup. Well, the other thing that Dave Gettleman mentioned was you can never have enough depth at every position, and that's something that I completely agree with. No, you no, you don't. No way. You don't like depth at a lot of positions. Not at all. Absolutely. <laughs> I've never said that no, on this program. That's all. a refreshing take that was never heard or never transcribed <laughs> in any capacity. But he did say that, and I think that goes hand in hand with the fact that he can be a backup. He can play on multiple downs. He can catch the ball in the backfield. He can run. So there's the versatility factor. But also, while they have full confidence that Saquon's going to be back up and running, especially based on the videos that he posts with respect to his rehab process, you just you can't guarantee that a player is going to play X amount of games. So I think that probably was part of the ammunition. If we could go out, we could get a back with some versatility, somebody that has some starting experience, as well as accepting a role of, there's going to be games where maybe he gets 10 carries, and then, John, there's going to be a game where maybe he gets three carries, or he just serves as a return man, and I think Booker does fit that profile. That was the rationale in making a move to bring somebody in like that. Last question I'll ask you. The answer to this question is no, and I'll just leave it at that. Did you get any hint, segue, clue as to where maybe the Giants might be pointing to in the draft based on what they said about free agency? For me, it's no. No, I didn't get any inkling that they're swinging one way versus the other. The only thing, as I mentioned earlier, John, that was brought up even in relation to the draft was how they balance free agency versus the draft. But right. if their philosophy is based on what Dave Gettleman talked about with some of the free agents they added and depth is an emphasis, versatility – we could sit here and I could argue you can meet that criteria with linebacker, with corner, with wide receiver, and a few other positions. With offensive so, linemen. You exactly. Go the list. So, I mean, you could bang your head against the wall, and I still think you'd come up with multiple players as opposed to specifically just one. I'm with you. You got anything else in the presses before I get the calls? I think that was the main emphasis and the main points. I think we hit it all on the nail. 973-667-1960. Limited Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2021 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive of events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seat starting at just $100. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Hey, Giant fans, get a New York Giants checking account from Investors Bank with the Giants branded debit card, security features, and discounts at the Giants online shop. You can earn up to 250 bucks when you open an account at InvestorsBank.com slash Giants, member FDIC. All right, we got 15 minutes of calls, then Ben Solak, and then maybe we'll close the show with some calls as well. All right, Cole, you're on the air. You're leaving us off today. What is your name and where are you calling from? Yeah, how you doing, John? Marty from Manahawkin. Marty, what's up, pal? Hey, uh... I've been seeing on the NFL channel that uh, it's been flashing across the bottom that they're giants or they're saying they're open for business for uh, 
trading down. Yeah, now. Marty, Marty, very, very, very quickly, I just want to make sure the fans understand where that's coming from. Ian Rappaport from NFL Network sent out a tweet. This is his report that the Giants, and it was a very, it's very important to understand the vagaries of the phrasing. And trust me, I talk to guys like Mike Garofalo and Ian Rappaport a lot, and they take very, 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 a, a lot of care in terms of how they phrase these. He says there is internal consideration as to whether or not the team should trade down. Let me just say this, and Lance, I think you'll agree. Do you know what every single team 10 days before the draft has? Internal consideration as to whether or not sure. the team should trade down. So uh, this is I, I, I would just be cautioned not to take too much out of a report like that that is just kind of stating something that's pretty obvious. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you know, if, and you know, with you know, with who you talk to, uh, if maybe there was something floating out there, like you know, why they would be moving down, or is it, or is it just maybe just to amass uh, some more picks? You know, it could be, it could be something like that too. Well, Marty, and, and thanks for the call. I, I think it's both, right? I mean, if you can move down four spots and still get a similar quality player, but pick up an extra day two pick or something like that, why not? I know we go back to the mock draft, Lance, that we did last week. With everyone wiped out on offense, with all the old linemen and wide receivers gone, I would have had, I know, I made you the offer, right? I said, do you could move down from 11 to 15, and I offered you a second-round pick from the Patriots. You said no. If I was the Giants, I would have taken that pick, and I would have went down to 15. I still would have gotten a good player. So that's the thing. How big of a drop-off are you having from going from 11 to 15? You know, if you're getting, you know, J.C. Horn instead of Patrick Sertan or Elijah Vera Tucker instead of Micah Parsons or Christian Darasaw instead of uh, Micah Parsons, whatever, is that going to kill you? If, if you're cool with that and those guys are similarly graded on your board, which, by the way, is very possible. They're not that far away on boards. You know, then you go make a trade like that. You pick up an extra pick. But if you're sitting there at 11 and you think – the you know key to the lock that's going to unlock your offense is sitting there or unlock your defense is sitting there, then you don't make the trade. And I think a lot of it, Lance, is going to depend on who's left on the board. It could be a quarterback or who knows. Maybe there's a team out there that, you know, if Jalen Waddle and Devontae Smith are sitting there and another team really wants a playmaker, they're willing to move up a couple of spots. I don't know. But that is the key right there to whether or not the Giants are going to be able to do a trade at number 11. Yeah, because teams move up for various reasons. It's not just always to get a quarterback. I remember the Steelers moved up with the Broncos Devin a year Bush. or two ago, and they wanted Devin Bush, and they got him, and that's a linebacker. So it doesn't always have to be a quarterback. But when you read Ian Rappaport's tweet again, there's a distinct difference between having a conversation and considering about moving down and then actually receiving an offer. That's the other thing. It takes two to tango. So just because right. a team is considering, hey, if we're offered something, would we be open to doing that? You always have those conversations about different scenarios, just like you have a conversation about, hey, if there's a player we really love and he drops, what would we be willing to give up if a team entertained the idea of swapping with us so we could make a jump? You always have those conversations. I don't really look at this as startling news or shocking news, but once again, just because a team may have interest in moving down, and even if it's worded as heavy influence, which it's not, but let's use that as a hypothetical, you still need another team willing to move up. 
And sometimes you don't know that answer until there's five minutes on the clock because a team now realizes, oh, we love that quarterback or we love that wide receiver. We want to make a move. So the whole point of having conversations now is anticipating what may happen in the draft. It doesn't mean that there's a legitimate offer on the table to act on. Yeah, Lance, at this point, too, I don't think we're going to get, well, I don't want to be too strong about it. I would be surprised if we had any other pre-draft trades because I think at this point, most trades are going to be dependent on who's on the board, right, at this point. So I don't think teams doing things this far ahead of, of draft night probably makes a ton of sense, right? Well, because I would think most teams would want to see what happens after the first three picks. Right. How those dominoes fall into place, and then you determine whether or not you want to make an aggressive move. Unless, once again, you love four to five quarterbacks in this draft, and they're similarly graded, which, once again, I find hard to believe. But if you want to go with that hypothetical, if you love four to five quarterbacks and you don't care who you get, then maybe you consider the rare move of going into the Falcon spot at four or whatever it may be. But I would think any other trade outside of that you're probably going to wait to see because why would you give up resources, John, if a guy could fold you? To right. me, it makes absolutely no sense. No, I'm with you, and I think the Falcons would be the only team that would probably be willing to do that trade before the draft began, but I don't know if another team will be willing to be. And, you know, maybe they don't know who the 49ers are going to take either. So if you don't sure. know who the Niners are taking and there's one quarterback you like, you don't know if he's going to be there, you don't want to make that move until the Falcons are on the clock. And why when the Falcons wouldn't care about waiting, right? There's, you know, the, no skin off their back. They don't mind waiting, so... It is what it is. I just I want to read this tweet verbatim just so I make sure I have it exactly right. This is a tweet from me in Rappaport. The Giants are slayed to pick number 11 in the NFL draft, and trading back is already something they are internally considering, I'm told. That spot will have real value. How rare would a trade down be? Dave Gettleman has never traded down in the first round in eight drafts as a GM. He's never traded down in any round, by the way. I believe it was 54 picks, Lance, or 60 picks. Someone, Dan Duggan, I think, put a tweet up there. So uh, it's a lot of picks. He's never traded down. So just something to keep in mind in terms of history. Let's go back to the phones. Call, you're on the air. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, hey John and uh, Lance. is Phil from North Carolina. Phil, what up, pal? Hey, Phil. Yeah. Hi. Right, so, um... You know, I, I, I've been running these simulations with Draft Network uh, Simulator, but uh, I think it's becoming increasingly common to have Slater go to the Panthers at nine, I think. And so that's kind of disappointing. I wanted to, I wanted to pick the offensive lineman. Yeah, Phil, by the I, way, I, 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 I happen to agree with that, by the way. I think the Panthers taking an offensive tackle is a high-probability selection. Right. Yeah, it makes total sense with and Donald uh, there now. So, yeah, so it's disappointing, and, and I think that's why, you know, the discussion going down makes sense even more so because if he's not on the board, then you can pick up an edge guy probably 18 or 19 or 20. And uh, so, so maybe that's, you know, it's kind of tied to that a little bit. Well, that's assuming they want an edge guy, though. Well, and that's also assuming that they don't love Micah Parsons or love Patrick Sertan or maybe Waddle or Devontae Smith are there, and they love those guys. So it really depends who's there and how the Giants have those players graded, Phil, you know? Yeah, if you love a guy and you're ready to pick at 11, you take the guy. Because you have to think that the extra second-round pick is going to be a franchise game-changing player from that perspective. And even if you think there's added value in gaining a player, I wouldn't disagree with you. You don't have a crystal ball that that second-round pick is going to be a franchise game-changer. So why pass up on the high probability that the 11th overall pick will be a far more impactful player than 
an additional second round pick simply because of the volume of draft picks. Yeah, the bottom, that to me doesn't add up. Phil, the bottom line is if the Giants think there's a blue chip player there at 11 and at 15 there will not be a blue chip player there, trading down probably doesn't make a ton of sense. Yes, I agree. Yeah, good point uh, to put a qualifier on it. I guess my, my second point real quick is I just, you know, I uh, last week last week uh, I brought up the table, the analytic table on percent drafting per position. And, yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, personally, I, I enjoy looking at the numbers, you know, because you can you can slice it. You can slice the numbers up. But I think it all these numbers are tools. That's, a, I think, a pretty clear cut tool. Because you really, it's not much wiggle room. You, you draft an edge guy, you draft an edge guy. But the grades, I can see hesitancy in the grades. Uh, but I still feel they're a good tool because if you kind of take it like with the margin of error, and uh, you know, like a thirty, a player that's rated a seventy, likely is doing better than a player uh, rated a thirty-five. So I guess I wanted to get your take on. You know, just use you know, kind of putting big error bars on it, but still using it as a tool. I'm not sure I understand your question. What do you mean a guy at 70 versus 35? Yeah, so so people take those numbers, the grading numbers, rated really literally like if there's one guy is rated at 60, the other's at 70, and it, oh, the 70 guy's better. What I'm saying is that. You oh, know, okay, okay, yeah, of, yeah. No, Phil, I, I, I thought you meant like 35th pick versus 70th pick. That's why I didn't know what the oh, hell you were no, talking about. No. Okay, no, no, I understand. Yeah, look, I think the one thing people don't do well with this a lot of times, Lance, and a lot of, I go back and forth with tweets in that in this, the draft is filled with so much uncertainty. I don't know, you know, I don't care how good your evaluation staff is and how good your scouts are, you're going to get players wrong every year. You're going to have one player ranked ahead of another one, and the other player is going to be better. That just happens. So there is a large level of uncertainty here, and you can't be too sure of your own convictions and let you know your ability to play the field a little bit. You know, it's the old game. Would you rather have one seventy-five percent chance of hitting the bullseye or three fifty percent chances of hitting the bullseye? You know what I mean? Do you just want more darts to throw at the board, or do you want that one dart that you have to make in order for it to work? So that that that's kind of the um, metaphor that I would use for de- making those types of determinations, taking account of the uncertainty that's just baked into the draft process. Well, if memory serves me correct, the whole positional flexibility or positional chart that the last caller was referencing to, I remember having a conversation. My counter to that was even if you look at the track record of positions that the Giants have focused on, you would then have to know what their board looked like every year as to why maybe they avoided a specific position. So that's why I don't really look at that as something that holds a great deal of substance because maybe the cornerback class that year wasn't very good. It would have, and, to, it would have to be over a really long period of time, so those types of anomalies would kind of average out over the course of the year. But you're right. There are, year by year, there are things that will alter decision-making rather than just saying position value this, position value that. No, I'm well, I you. mean, the perfect example is the Giants haven't taken a linebacker in the first round since Carl Banks, okay? I've said that multiple times. But does that mean that every year when they were picking in the first round, a linebacker was right. in consideration with that first round pick? No, I can't say that with 100% certainty because we'd have to go back and look exactly how their boards lined up. So that's another reason why 
you have to have proper context. It's not just the team doesn't value this position. It may be from a value standpoint when they were ready to select. There was no one at that position that warranted taking with that first round pick. So once again, I need that data to truly have a takeaway from all of that. Yeah, just very quickly. I don't think they've picked an edge rusher in the first round since what, JPP? That sounds right, right? They've been the first round edge since JPP. Well, how many edge rushers have they passed up since then? I think the only one that comes to mind for me, Lance, is Josh Allen, but they picked the quarterback. Yeah. So, you know, was there a guy that they should have picked, but they didn't? I don't think we know that. All right, we'll squeeze in one more call before Ben Solak in a couple minutes. Call, you're on the air. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, it's Scott from New Mexico. Hey, Scott. Uh, Question for you, uh, because it relates to the Giants. Well, I hope Uh, so. You're calling a Giant show, Scott. (laughs) Uh, but I'm going to pose a question to you. What does Drew Brees, Russell Wilson, Joe Theismann, Joe Montana all have in common? What are the two things they have in common? Um, I don't know how tall Joe Theismann was. I know the other three guys were all probably under 6'2", and they, I don't know about Theismann, but I know the other three guys didn't have the best arm strength. Well, the two things that well, the they Super all Bowl, Super is that Bowl, what you're referring to? Well, they all won Super Bowls, and yeah. they all weren't drafted in the first round. And okay, so... And my point is this. There seems to be this this fury over the quarterbacks that are coming out this year. But you and Lance both know it takes a while to develop quarterbacks. And we're arguing now whether there will be four or five quarterbacks taken in the first round, which helps the Giants. Based on the information I was just listening to with uh, Dave Gettleman, uh, he said, and I, I hope I got this right, the right quote, he said that, Offense scores points and defense wins championships. He said that before, yeah. Yeah, and so based on that scenario and with the quarterbacks that are being taken in the first round, which to me seems like it's a little bloated because a lot of them don't have a lot of experience, does it open up the door for somebody like a Micah Parsons for the 11th round draft choice? Because if he wants to cement his defense, he seems to be the top player of the defensive players that are coming out, other than, say, a cornerback, that would solidify the Giants' defensive line because he can do so many things. And I just wanted to get your perspective on that. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate the call, my friend. Um, Well, I would say, one, that, and and then, Lance, I'll let you answer, and I'll get Ben on the line here. Um, I don't think the quarterback part of his point has anything to do with the second part of his point in terms of, you know, one having to do with the other. I don't see how that computes. I mean, if you want to... You know, secure your defense, that's fine. I think some people have Parsons as a top guy. Some people might have Patrick Sertan as a top guy or J.C. Horn as a top guy. Or I've heard a lot of people say people in the NFL front offices have Christian Barmore ranked a lot higher than people on the outside do. So, you know, sure, but I, I, I think Dave Gettleman does care about defense. But how? But he also had a press conference three months ago when he said the Giants need to add weapons and playmakers about a bajillion times. So I think both are important. And I think they're at the point here, Lance, with where they have they've built. It's not a situation where I don't think, you know, you have to do something no matter what. I think it all depends on, on the players you're choosing from. Well, the reason why I selected Micah Parsons in our mock draft on Friday, if you happen to miss that, was... Part of it was value. Part of it was also versatility within Patrick Graham's scheme as well. So if Dave Gettleman is evaluating defensive players within the context of how Patrick Graham utilizes personnel, how he mixes and matches guys, to me, Parsons would make sense and he'd be a good fit from that standpoint. So I could see Dave Gettleman thinking through that lens to the last caller's point and maybe that being 
the reason behind making that pick. I don't think it really matters whether there's four or five or three quarterbacks taken. I think the Giants will be in a position at 11 for a defensive player, probably in all likelihood to still be on the board. The question is, do they think that the value of that player matches up with where they're ready to select at 11? I think that's the million-dollar question. But their defense, I've said this time and time again, their defense played very well down the stretch last season. And you look at some of the guys returning from injury, some of the rookies that are going to continue to develop. There's a lot to like about that Giants defense. But if anybody thinks that you just take your defensive unit and how it performs at the end of last season, you then bring it back into week one, you snap your fingers, and it's just a matter of adding talent that you automatically get better, then I don't know what to tell you. Because we've seen defenses fluctuate in production. We've seen offenses Lance, fluctuate Lance, I want to go back four years ago. How great was this Giants defense in 2016? Yeah, that's a good example. And they brought back all their players, right? How yeah. good was the Giants defense in 2017? Well, they struggled immensely. Yeah. Yeah. So you just don't know from year to end. Same coordinator, too, by the way. It's not like sure. that That changed Spags either. Spags was still there. So yeah. just something to keep in mind as you go ahead. One year, and this is something Ben McAdoo always used to say, and he was, he was absolutely right about this. Just because you were good at something the year before doesn't mean you're going to be good at something the next year. Different years, it's a different calculation. Things change in the NFL a lot from year to year. All right, we're going to be joined by Ben Solak from the Draft Network in just a moment. But first, I want to remind fans not to miss out on your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giant Games and world-class concerts in 2021 as a Giant Suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available or place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash suites for more information. And now we're joined by our guest for today's show. He is... Ben Solak, he works for the Draft Network. We've had some of his colleagues on over the course of the year. We like to talk to Ben leading up to every draft. Ben, you got Meadow and Schmelk here in the Northeast. You are about 10 days away from what, about like 350 days worth of work getting ready for this? Does that sound right? Yeah, something like that. Don't like to think about it too much. You really put things into, into perspective. We're, uh, we're excited for draft week. It, it's our Christmas. Uh, and certainly the anticipation, all the work we've put in, we're excited to see this class finally find some landing spots. And then we'll spend May talking about those landing spots. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get to our day two prospects, which is kind of what we want to focus on with you, I know you guys at the Draft Network do a great job deep diving, not just on these first round guys. I want to put to you the scenario that we had with our mock draft on Friday where we played this out, and I think it was pretty realistic, where the first 10 picks in the draft were all offensive players. The Dallas Cowboys, you might be surprised, they did take Rashawn Slater over Patrick Sertan. That was the 10th player off the board. And not one defensive player was gone. The Giants were up at 11. If you're in that situation, Ben, and you're the Giants, where do you look in terms of where you're getting the best value for a player there? And also, of course, consider some need the Giants might have in that spot too. Right, so it, it, it's a weak defensive draft. Whether or not one or two defensive players goes in the top ten, uh, it's a weak, weak draft overall. And so it, it, the Giants are in a bit of a tricky spot. While they were in, when we were in season, and they were picking off in top ten, it was even trickier. So, so eleven is a little bit better. Basically, you're looking at the top of the corner class: Patrick Sertan out of Alabama, J.C. Horn out of South Carolina, and also the top of the edge class maybe starting to come uh, into play here. Jalen Phillips out of Miami is the wild card. He's a very, very good player. A really dominant tape in Miami in his final season, but he's a transfer from UCLA who medically retired from football because of his concussion background. Uh, different teams will have him on or off the board relative to where their medical staff 
replaces him, if they think that he's going to be available for the majority of his rookie contract or not. Uh, and so Phillips here is a big wild card. I think Sertan, Horn, and Phillips would be the three you'd like to be having the conversation about. I think Phillips makes the most sense for the Giants, given you know you've added Dory Jackson and James Bradbury in back-to-back offseason. Uh, you know you you do have your Lorenzo Carters and your Ocean Dimmons of the world, but I think a, a dominant pass rusher would be welcome in New York. It's a question of whether or not they have Phillips on their board and are willing to take that risk. Uh, in the rest of the edge class, Quiddy Pay, uh, Adam Michigan, and Diesel Delaria of Georgia, are fine players. I don't think I'd like to take them this early. I'd prefer to take them with a the trade back. We saw Rappaport just, just a few hours ago speculate that the Giants could be willing to trade back, but of course, uh, Dave Gettleman historically has not done so. So that's something that if they do it, I'll like it, but I'm not going to uh, hold my breath expecting them to go for it. So Lance, I will let you ask Ben then about the guy you did select. Well, that was going to be my next exact question. I said one guy you didn't name, Ben, was Micah Parsons. I know you were referring more towards the edge rushers. I'm just curious, your take on Parsons and whether or not he warrants being in the conversation at 11. I think right. I think we, we start welcoming Micah Parsons into the conversation at 11. Uh, the athleticism is exciting. It's tantalizing. We don't typically see linebackers with this much length and then this combination of length and explosiveness uh, in every single class. And so when you, when you think about where Tremaine Edmonds went to the Bills in the middle teens a couple years ago, that's about what we're looking at here with, with Parsons. Uh, again, a young prospect. Again, an ascending prospect. The tricky thing for Parsons here in New York is you have Blake Martinez, who's I think already going to be your established quote unquote Mike backer for this defense. Uh, they like the, the the amount that he put out, the production, the the, the tackle production. So you're now going to either ask him to play a weak side uh, next to Martinez. He's going to be a run and chase player. He's going to have to play sideline to sideline. You typically don't see players of this size play in that role. So it's a little bit unorthodox. I think it's doable, uh, but again, a little bit unorthodox. Or he's going to play him on on ball Sam, right? In terms of you go in these four three under fronts that Patrick Graham likes, you're gonna see him rotate onto a line of scrimmage. He was a high school edge. This again can work. It's just something we didn't see him do at Penn State. So if you're gonna take Micah Parsons, you're gonna to have to get creative with how you use him. It's a similar conversation we had with Isaiah Simmons last year. Now Simmons ends up going eight to the Cardinals, but didn't necessarily have a great rookie season. And it's because players like this often take time just to figure out how exactly we want to get them on the field. What do we want their primary position to be? How is that going to affect the parts of the playbook that they're comfortable with, the downs we play them on, so on and so forth. So Parsons is an ascending prospect. I'm not sure for the Giants he's an immediate high impact on the field in year one defensive prospect. John, if I could just jump in with a quick follow-up. Yeah, absolutely. To cut you off. Yeah, please. You bring up an interesting point, Ben, because what I always emphasize is, and evaluating whether or not a guy's going to be impactful in year one versus – if you're going to take somebody the first round and you get the four-year contract, the fifth-year option, I would argue you're not just drafting the guy to be that immediate impact year one. You want him to then warrant the second contract. So how much then does that enter the equation when evaluating a guy like Isaiah Simmons and Micah Parsons through your lens where, okay, maybe they don't make the immediate impact you anticipated year one, but you're really going to reap the rewards in year two and year three, which to me adds further value to that length of the contract. Absolutely. That was the very next thing I was going to say. It was going to be, you don't want to just be drafting for year one. And so if you're confident in your defensive staff and your ability to uh, develop a player like Michael Parsons, who was an edge in high school, and one full year and change of real starting at linebacker, this big body type, and how is he going to move and how are we going to line him up? If you're confident and you can solve that riddle, 
then yeah, you, you take a, a, a long on-ramp of year one, a learning process in year one, for the impact you get years two, three, four, and then beyond into that second contract. Absolutely. So Parsons is a swing. It's a big, healthy swing and a fastball. We're going to try to hit this puppy out of the park. Uh, for the Giants, I think you can justify that at 11. Where this conversation gets tricky is when we typically talk about top 15 or so picks, those are usually consensus first-round players. We usually have about 13, 14 consensus first-round players in a class, and then it starts to get into guys who some teams have his first first-rounder, some don't, and then whatever, so on and so forth. Usually when you're picking low teams, this is a player that you expect to have an impact in year one. So you do have to really be hoping that you get that high-caliber play in year two and year three because you are going to be taking a little bit of a discount on year one play relative to what you expect from the 11th overall pick. I wouldn't mind the Michael Parsons pick at all. It's just, it, it, it is a big swing. It is a bit of a risk. And if they go for it, they have to put a lot behind Patrick Graham and that staff to develop Parsons appropriately. All right, then I got the pick in the second round, Ben, and I was in a tough spot. It took me a while to take my pick. I ended up taking Joseph Osai, the pass rusher out of Texas. And my my argument there was I really want an offensive lineman, right? But at that point, uh, most of the top guys were gone. The next the two guys that were on my rankings for offensive line were um, Osai's teammate, Sam Cosme, and also Liam Eikenberg out of Notre Dame. But in my opinion, since they brought Solder back for another year, they drafted Matt Parrott in the third round last year. The Giants have more of a needed guard right now than tackle. And my thought at that spot was, look, I feel pretty confident that I can grab a guard, a guy that can play guard, whether it's a guy you're converting or a straight-up guard, at the top of round three, but all the edge guys that I like are going to be wiped out by the time you get to round three. Uh, just to keep in mind, Joe Tryon was gone, Rousseau was gone, you know, all those other first-round edges to Quiddy Pays, the Phillips, all those guys were all off the board. Uh, Peyton Turner was still there. I'm not sure he's a 3-4 fit for the Giants necessarily. Do you think I took the right tack there in trying to look ahead to round three, or should I have just said, no, to heck with this, pick Eichenberg, pick Cosme, plug him in a guard, and then, you know, try to figure out edge down the road? No, I like your approach. I, I always say if there's a position that you can get a starter at in day three, let alone round three in the NFL draft, it's usually guard. Uh, we can get away with just let's get a body type that we like, let's get a big fellow, let's put him in a phone booth and have him install for us. Usually we can pull that off. Shane Lemieux is a good example out of last year's draft. He's a, round, uh, a day three pick, excuse me. He was put into starting time, and he was fine. I mean, he do you want a line man of Shane Lemieux? Probably not. You want some higher caliber players. But Lemieux can get the job done for you. And that, that, that's a yeoman's position there at guard. And so that, and that shouldn't discourage you if I love a guard. I have him highly ranked to go out and get him. Uh, impact players matter no matter the position. But that's the spot where you can get away with it, as opposed to edge, which I agree with you. Uh, the Giants right now, I think, have some attractive depth at edge. I think a rotation that has. Uh, like the guys I brought up previously, O'Shane Jimenez and, and Lorenzo Carter. I think that's a that's a good Fedia Nigbo. That that can work for you. But if we're going to add to it, let's add a high impact player and at a premium position like edge. Those players are required with early picks. So Joseph Osai, really good three four fit, good stand up rusher, brings quickness on the outside arc, and that has the ability to drop. He, unlike Parsons, is a linebacker to edge convert. Right, he went the other direction, and so he has some of that background dropping out into short zones. He makes a lot of sense. I, I prefer Peyton Turner as a player, but I agree with you. In terms of the Giants archetype, uh, Osai makes a lot more sense for their board. And so I would say, yeah, 
you want to go for a, a, a higher impact position, a premium position with those early picks, and then try to get away with later picks into the rotation on the interior offensive line. That only works for so long, but the Giants have, have more than a few needs, you know, picking top 12. So in this case, I think, yeah, going edge earlier makes sense. Lance, I want to follow up really quickly. What guys do you think will still be sitting there, Ben, at the top of round three that you can get in their guard relatively quickly, whether it's a, a convert like a Jalen Mayfield or a Jackson Carmen or, you know, uh, someone like, say, Banks out of Notre Dame. Who are some of those yep. guys that, that, that you like that could be there at the top of round three that I can plug and play a guard and feel pretty good about what I'll get out of them in, on day one? Yeah, Aaron Banks is going to be my first name, right? I talked about get a big guy in there, let him work in a phone booth. Aaron Banks, 6'5", 335. That'll do just fine. <laughs> uh, so he's got big-time He's got big time stopping power, big-time length. He's a tackle-side body who is a multi-year starter at guard uh, for Notre Dame. And so I like that. I like Deontay Brown out of Alabama for the same reason, uh, 6'3", 350. He's, much, he's a road grader. He's a real big, wide fella. I'm not sure you're going to get him that early, uh, early round three. He might go beforehand. But Banks will definitely be there. Sidarius Hutcherson, uh, 6'4", 3'20", South Carolina, multiple-year starter on guard. Uh, ben Cleveland, Georgia, 6'6", 350, multiple-year starter on the interior. How about uh, Trey Smith, Ben? You like him? I, I do. Trey Smith was a very high-caliber recruit coming in, played tackle and guard at Tennessee, missed an entire season, uh, had some blood clotting issues that, that are going to be checked out by the league. Uh, the league loves high-caliber recruits. They love those five stars. Smith never really developed. He came in good, he's leaving just good. You know what I mean? So there's a, uh, I don't think he got great coaching in Tennessee, but you'd like to have a conversation with him and the people around him to make sure he's a good learner, make sure he's a good guy in the locker room. Uh, if so, the ceiling's quite high, guard or tackle. Uh, so he's he, he's a little bit more of a swing as opposed to these guys like Cleveland and Banks. I think he's going to plug and play, get solid NFL play out of them, and be happy with it. Ben, I want to stay on the offensive side of the ball as we target some of the guys in the second and the third round who are at least are projected to go in that neck of the woods, or who knows, maybe even they drop further. Two guys who have come up in conversation more often than not on this program. One is Nico Collins, the wide receiver out of Michigan, and then Tommy Tremble, the tight end out of Notre Dame, who was not used much as an offensive target at Notre mm -hmm. Dame. I'm curious your thoughts on those two and where you think they could wind up falling when it comes to the alignment of the draft. Yeah, so Tommy Tremble is an interesting one. Good rise throughout this year when used was effective uh, for Notre Dame. And critically, Notre Dame used him as a move tight end, right? So he played in, in their offense, I think it's the, the ass tight end, the H-back role. Uh, so you've seen him in a lot of different alignments, which is encouraging for his NFL projection because you're confident you can put him in different spots in year one, and that way you can get 20 snaps out of him instead of 15 snaps. And you're just going to start to milk a little bit more value right away out of that, that pick. Uh Notre Dame isn't a, a, a dumb program. It's a smart program. Tommy Reese is a good offensive coordinator. There's a reason why they use the guys they use. They didn't use the guys they didn't use. The a jack-of-all-trades master of none. He was a particular role player for the Irish. That's probably going to be what he is in the league because uh, I don't think the hands are, are perfect. I don't think the routes are perfect. The athleticism is good. I don't see it on film all the time. And so I, he's going to be a dude that I think you want on your team in a tight end two role, at a decent price. He's not. Uh, people talk about him as a very high-ceiling player, and I think he could get better. Um, but usually those sort of players get used heavily in college. Uh, and, and so it, it is odd to see Tremble with that low usage that you alluded to. So as a round-free player, I think he's a great pick. It's a light tight end class. I'm not sure he makes it there. 
Uh, he's in that second tier of tight ends with, with Brevin Jordan and, and out of Miami, Hunter Long out of BC. Even Pat Frymuth out of Penn State might still be in that second tier. And so I'm not sold he makes it to round three. If he does, I think that's a good pick. You just have to understand his value comes from his versatility, not from being dominant in any one role. Nico Collins is now uh, one in another, a long list of Michigan receivers who simply has underproduced for the Wolverines because of Wolverines' offense. Their quarterback's one very good. Uh, they've struggled with quarterback play for the last couple of years. So Tariq Black, who transferred to Texas, is in this class uh, before Nico Collins was Donovan Peoples-Jones. You know, so he, he came out sixth-round pick despite a high recruiting background. Collins is a four-star. I was talking about the NFL loves to see those stars. They love those high-caliber recruits. Uh, and so... Collins is a height-weight speed player with good jump ball ability. Uh, this is a nice player to have on your depth chart in your four receiver sets. You're down by 14. You need to spread and shred. He can create an explosive play for you. Natural ball tracker in the air. Uh, so you could be a good deep target. You know, Fans of Darius Slayton will know this. You can't just be fast. You have to be able to find the ball in the air. Something that Slayton does well, something that Collins does well. And Collins has the size to win uh, up at the top of the catch point as well. Right now, I don't know what... Collins is going to give you on all three downs. I don't think he's an underneath separator at this stage. don't think the routes are strong enough at this point. Could play with better play strength given his size, and he doesn't. So ideally, he's in a Darius Slayton-like role. He's primary being used as a field stretcher. When he's called upon for more volume, it's usually because the wide receivers above him aren't available, and it's a mixed bag of results. So I'm not certain how good of a fit he's going to be with the Giants, who I think already have Darius Slayton in such a role. That being said, you can never... Uh, go, you know, it's never a bad idea to add speed, never a bad idea to add size, and he has both. I expect him to go around round three. So for the Giants, at, at, at that late day two, he should be available. By the way, I jumped on you, Ben, before. Was there another guard you wanted to throw in there before I interrupted you with Trey Smith, or did you get through your group? Uh, I think that, that, that's a good representation of him. David Moore out of Grambling, son. Uh, but he's a, he's a HBCU kid, 6'1", 350, just wide attack. Uh, he's, he's entertaining, but it's a really nice day two, day three group of guards this year. Uh, so I think that, you, like I said, you can get away with going late at that position and still finding yourself a, a competitor for Shane Lemieux and, and Will Hernandez. Here's a player I watched this morning, and this is why I'm asking you the question because I've been thinking about this since I started watching him. Uh, the first thing I watched was all of Jabril Cox's coverage s- snaps, and I'm like, holy cow, this guy's Fred Warner. He's unbelievable. Then I right. watched Jabril Cox's run defense snaps, and I'm like, oh, wow, he, he plays like a safety that doesn't want to, you know, to get in the mix, and that's really not good. So where do you think, because, you know, the, the whole point of having a really good coverage linebacker, right, is that you can have him in there, he'll play the run, but then on play-action passes, he can cover the tight end, carry him down the seam a little bit and do those things in zone, and Cox can do all those things, but it doesn't help you if the guy can't play the run at all. Then just throw a safety in there. What's the difference? So how do you think teams are going to view Cox when they watch his tape, and how high do you think he'll go? Because, you know, you mentioned you want to put a guy that can run sideline to sideline and maybe cover man-to-man a little bit next to Blake Martinez. I think Cox could be maybe a bit of a fit there. How do you think the NFL is going to view him? Because I do think there's a very interesting dichotomy in, in his play. I'm glad you asked me about him because I'm going to say this, and then if I'm wrong, I'll never ever find it. And if I'm right, I'll just share it a bunch of times in the next couple years. <laughs> Cox is, is just an absurdly good man cover linebacker. Yeah, he's great. It's not like a, a real thing. Right, exactly. Usually when our linebackers are really good coverage linebackers, it's in zone. It's Luke Keekley, they've got good eyes. Fred Warner, right, they've got good eyes. Uh, Cox can, like, play press. I don't even know who taught him this, but he can. He's confident yeah. in it. And, and like, by the way, Ben, over slot receivers now. Not like, yeah, yeah it's unbelievable. 
Yeah, uh, Texas A&M has an early drafted tight end named Jalen Weidemeyer is going to come out next year. Uh, he's not eligible this year. Cox bagged him up. Four quarters. Gone. I'm, this is ridiculous. I don't know who taught this kid. He's got a, such a knack for it. Zone, not so much. Uh, he's learning. He's getting there. There's good reps and there's bad reps. But what's really unique is his ability to line up in man. So I, a team is going to take Jabril Cox with the intention of getting him on the field on third down to play man coverage. He's going to be a sub-package player. As you brought up, once he plays really well in those sub-packages, defensive coordinators are going to want to get him on the field on first down because if the offense passes on first down, they want him out there in responsibility. How is he going to align? Who is he going to take off the field? Right. He's basically going to function like a nickel safety in that way. 100%. So very, very tricky. Very, very tricky to, to figure out the valuation. Uh, as far as linebacker, linebackers go, I don't have him ranked too highly because he's not going to fill traditional linebacker mold. If you miss out on Jeremiah Wusukoromoa in round one, this is the sort of player you go after on day two. Uh, uh, the team that takes him has to use him correctly. Otherwise, if they just try to mass him up and make him a three-down linebacker, I don't think that will be to his benefit. I think he should stay lean. I think he should stay quick. He's a tricky one to figure out. Uh, so think about where uh, Davian Taylor last year out of Colorado was rumored to be a high pick, ended up going fringe top 100 to the Eagles, compensatory picks in round three. I think that that's a similar arc to Cox, but he's put out better film than Taylor ever did. Top 75 makes the most sense to me. But, man, he is a very, very interesting player. Ben, John earlier was referencing our mock draft when he took Joseph Asai. I want to throw out a few other guys that went in the same ballpark because I'm curious, as the Giants are on the clock getting ready to pick at 42, what you think of some of these guys and maybe if there's a big separation. We had players such as Carlos Boogie Basham, Asante Samuel Jr., Jamin Davis, Nick Bolton. I'll even throw in Trayvon Merrig, the safety out of TCU. What do you think of that group and that target around the Giants' second-round pick? Uh, Trayvon Merrick's the best player there. Really comfortable saying Trayvon Merrick is a round-one grade. is a very high-quality safety. Combo safety going to be great. Uh, the Giants do not need that player. <laughs> you got Xavier <laughs> McKinney, Jabril Peppers, Logan right. Ryan, Julie sure. Love. You are yeah. okay. Uh, so that's, that's a great play. I'm surprised he made it down there. Uh, I don't think the Giants need him, but he's good. Asante Samuel is also a very, very good player. Corner out of Florida State. Uh, zone eyes cover two. A, a lot of what Patrick Graham would want his corners to do, Asante Samuel does well. Can hop up in the line and play press, man. and can do it tough. Again, I'm not sure how much they need this player. It depends on how much faith you really have in Adore Jackson, given the deal that they gave him. I think they have a good amount of faith. Uh, you have Darnay Holmes. I think you like his, his potential as your nickel. Uh, so I, I don't think they would need it to Samuel. Wouldn't hate it at all. I think that acquiring good cover men is 100% of the time a good idea, uh, but I, I don't see the need there uh, too much. Carlos Basham, love the player. Uh, uh, he's much more so a, a, a collapse-the-pocket interior power rusher. And mm-hmm. I don't think interior in the sense where he lines up because He'll line up some sub-package three, but largely Wake Forest lined him up at five-tech outside the tackle, but then they're having him crash inside. He's going to be a through-you to inside-of-you pass rusher. The Giants need outside passers. You have B.J. Hill, you have Leonard Williams. You have guys who can line up on the outside shoulder of a tackle and then take him inside. You need guys who can, who can high-side rush, rush on the outside. For that reason, I don't think Boogie Basham necessarily makes the most sense. Jameen Davis would be very interesting to me. Uh, we talked about Jabril Cox having that Davian Taylor kind of projection. Jameen Davis is another one, 6'4", 229, built like Isaiah Simmons, ran like Isaiah Simmons, really nice. Just 
very little starting experience. The Kentucky defense didn't use him as creatively as the Clemson defense did Isaiah Simmons. Will learn to be a first-round guy. Another, if I trust my defensive staff, this is the sort of body type I want to give them because this is a ludicrous athlete playing on the defensive side of the ball. And the fifth man you said was... Was Nick Bolton. Nick Bolton. Uh, I appreciate who Nick Bolton was, the college player. He was very fun to watch in college. <laughs> Six foot 232 is not good NFL linebacker size. You better be nuts good at deconstructing blocks or nuts explosive. And he's and I not. He's, I think he's fine at deconstructing blocks, and I think he's fine at explosiveness. So if Bolton makes it, it'll be a testament to his toughness. It'll be a testament to his, 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 his vision because sometimes he's a really good at anticipation. Um, but is that a bet that I want to make? Not that early. Uh, I, I'd rather bet on my outliers a little bit later as opposed to betting on them with a top 50 pick. So on that board, from what I'm hearing was on there, my conversation would have been, yeah, Joseph Osai, uh, uh, Peyton Turner, like I said, a player I really like, maybe a, a, a guard or a tight end, depending on who was there, but probably Osai would have been where I leave. Second group of outside corners, and I'm going to leave Asante Samuel in that kind of end of that first group along with Newsom, right? So let's take Newsom, Samuel, um, Farley, Sertan, and Horn off the board. When you get to that next group, and I've watched all these guys, and to me, I'm going to call that the projection group because you watch Eric Stokes, you see stuff, but then you see, oh boy, he doesn't really, you know, handle stuff well at the top routes when he has to break down and transition. You know, you watch his teammate. He has the same issues, gives up a lot of catches. A lot of people love Kelvin Joseph. That dude gives up nothing but plays on tape. I, I, I know he has the, the uh, athletic ability. I don't see it. Right. Um, Melifanu, again, you see all the traits you want, but he just gives up a lot of catches. Your thoughts on that next group of corners that's, you know, are going to probably start going off the board, what, pick 40 maybe, something like that, through that third round? Yeah, you've seen the the you know the ESPN tweets. I think Matt Miller as well having like uh, they have a very high number of wide receivers graded in the top 100, and then a very high number of corners. I'm with them on wide receivers. I don't see it with corners. Yeah, neither uh, do I. Is, I'm with you. Yeah, this is a top heavy class. I would be tripping over myself to get one of Patrick Sertan, J.C. Horn, Greg Newsom, Caleb Farley is out of Virginia Tech is a big question mark. Uh, the back injury, of course, and then Eric Stokes as well. Stokes tested not just good; he tested great. Uh, you're willing to, I think, take a swing on that top 40. Uh, that physical ability allows you to play pretty much any alignment with him and expect him to be able to check the boxes in terms of what's required of him. Mentally, uh, he's, a good pro- he's a good preparation player. He came from a good program. I think he'll be okay. Uh, so I'd even put Stokes in that top 40 group just because the athleticism is so nice. Sure. After that, developmental outside guys, and then you've got some, I think, fun cover two guys. I really like Asante Samuel, but I understand size-wise, you're going to limit him for some teams inside 10. Famous true of Elijah Molden out of Washington. Love him. think he's a great zone player, very instinctive. Do you want him as an outside corner? Do you want him in man coverage on third and five? I, if the opposing receiver is 6'2 or bigger, no. No. Uh, so that's, that, right, that's a concern for you. And so these guys are more so uh, uh, versatile players, nickel safeties, corners. Yes, I can get away with them outside if I'm playing zone. It's, the, the NFL puts such a premium on man coverage that it's tough to value guys that highly. And then you've got, right, all these big, long, strong players who I think need time to develop. The one guy after 40 who I'm willing to plant my flag on is Paulson Adebo out of Stanford. You know, I have uh, not six, watched him yet, actually. Interesting. All right, you got nine days. I want to hear back from you. <laughs> Paulson Adebo out of, out, of, out of Stanford, four-star wide receiver corner recruit. Who was, was going to go to Notre Dame as a wideout, but really wanted a Stanford offer. Got it late. 
but Stanford said only if you're going to be a corner. And Oladipo said that's no problem. Shows up, is able to get playing time as a freshman. Again, he was a wide receiver corner in, in, in high school. He had some experience. He had playing time as a freshman. As a sophomore, uh, 2018 season, dominant. Uh, unbelievable ball production. These guys with wide receiver backgrounds are often quite good at reading route distribution because sure. they've been on the other side of the ball. He has that clearly in space. Good ball skills, good line. Good line what you expect. 2019 was not as strong. Uh, the, the, the ball production in 2018 was probably just a little bit of an outlier. 2019 was more down to earth. But the route recognition remains, the closing speed remains. Another more so off-cover guy, but he can still play man from catchman alignment, so five-yard alignment. Uh, I'd be willing to, to – to, I'd want to commit myself to him in round two. Paulson is the name I would add. But in general, that developmental corner group that you talked about, the projection, it is a lot more uncertain than I think it's being billed as. A lot of bodies. Lance, you got one more, or are you good? Well, no, the only other thing that I was going to follow up as we are up against the clock, yep. but all great mm-hmm. stuff out of Ben, so really appreciate the time and the insight here. You alluded to earlier that if the Giants or another team were to wait on trying to find maybe a starting caliber guard, Ben, if I heard you correctly, you could get away with some of the later rounds. I'm curious, outside of guard, what's another position if the Giants wanted to play the game of patience that you think they could maximize value as we get beyond the third round in this year's draft? So it's always true of wide receiver, because wide receivers are so, so, so deep every year. There's so many different body types and so many different roles. Uh, it's also, I think, true of safety this year. It's not a very good safety class at the top. So you have a lot of incomplete role players, developmental guys that are just going to fall into, into round three and round four. Uh, as we joked earlier, not necessarily the best class, uh, not necessarily the position that you need to be coming after on, because they're, they're really strong there. I'll say linebacker. Uh, this is a good year for linebacker. To me, it's the strongest defensive class. Uh, after your top guys, your Michael Barnes, your Zayvon Collins, your Jeremiah Cornwellis, he's, he's a little bit of like a linebacker safety hybrid, you're going to get a, a smattering of decent-sized guys who are able to play run-and-chase will for you, which is a, a role that the Giants could fill. We talked about Michael Parsons. He's not the traditional body type for it. But if you look at a player like Pete Werner at at Ohio State, 6'3", 240, a little bigger, but he can do that job. Jabril Cox, 6'3", 235. Yep, Cam McGrone, 6'1", 235. Yep, Derek Barnes at at Purdue is your on-ball Sam, 6'1", 245, X-Edge at at Purdue, and then transition to on-ball linebacker. I'm a very big Tony Fields fan, 6'1", 225. He's more so of your box safety, Jabril Peppers today, but he is a very good player, played like for the Mountaineers last year. So it is a good linebacker class in terms of depth. And linebacker is always a spot because we're not really seeing three linebackers on every single down all the time in the league anymore. Linebacker is a spot where you can go get a role player, have him play 30 35% of the snaps. Is that really a starter for you? Probably not, given the way that Patrick Graham plays his defense. But it's an important role, and if you can fill an important role round three, round four or later, that's a big win in the draft. So I do like the depth of linebacker class this year. Safety and wide receiver as well. Those are the positions that I think are deepest. That's what you would be targeting on day all right, Ben, final one. If you had to plant your flag on one edge rusher, either I guess round two, though I think that might be too easy, and take Peyton Turner out of the mix. If there's one guy that you really like that maybe other people you don't think are, are high enough on that at the edge rusher position, who is that for you? You made me take Peyton Turner out of the mix? Yeah, I'm making you take Peyton Turner uh, out of the mix. Uh, I'm big on, on Dale Ingbo, who's the, uh, the edge out of Vanderbilt, who many people have noted if he could have tested – would be higher in this draft. He had an Achilles injury before the senior bowl. I agree. Uh, 6'6", 265. I always I talked about how are good players used. 
Vanderbilt took Odiyingbo and said, all right, this is our best player. Let's put him everywhere. Uh, so they lined him up at five-tech, three-tech. They put him up over the nose at zero-tech. He's 265. Uh, they put him all the place, stand-up, outside, made him drop. They just used him for everything they possibly could because they knew he was their best athlete. Uh, that means that developmentally he doesn't have the rush arsenal you'd like to see on the outside edge where he's going to play. Um, but he can line up as, as a, a big-body five-tech for you and play the run. And then he can line up out wide, seven-tech. He can stand up, and he can be a, a, a dangerous outside rusher. He's going to be more so of a long-arm player. He's going to be more so of a go-through-you sort of a guy. Um, but Deo Diengbo would be a lot higher in this game than a regular preseason process. I don't able to get him round three. I think that's a great bet. And then you'd be kill. I'm sorry, John. You'd no, be please. killing us from a broadcasting standpoint with Ode Yingbo and Odenabo on yeah. the team here. I mean, come on, yeah, Jeez. a lot, right? Absolutely. The Giants <laughs> really going after the Tunguska. And, and by the way, you also seem very anxious to, to 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 say why you love Peyton Turner so much. You can do that too. Yeah. Well, so everything that Odenabo might be, we know more about with Peyton Turner. He had really good testing. He ran a sub seven one three cone at six five, which is just nuts. Uh, was a, a basketball recruit initially, then transferred over to football, uh, did not know the game, did not know his position. Houston was trying to play him as a, as a rush three pack at 285 pounds. Cut some weight, started playing as a stand-up outside rusher, still learning the position, yes, but there's the, the, the flashes of quickness and power blend are stupid. Uh, Brady Christensen, BYU, going to be an early pick at tackle, handled everybody he faced, and then he met Peyton Turner. And Turner gave him a run. Christensen won his reps. Turner won his reps. Uh, that was very eye-popping film. It was one of the best players Turner faced, and he took it to him for four quarters. Very high-motor player, very highly motivated player. Really nice developmental profile for Peyton Turner. I'd be willing to take a bet on him. And, and you think he's more of a even-front D-end, right, than, a, than an odd-front? Yeah, I think that I, what, with Turner at 275, That's you're what looking I'm saying. at a big five. Yeah, you're looking at a big five tech. You're looking at that that Michael Bennett esque sort of a role that you saw in Seattle. Whereas Odie Yangbos probably can give you a little more versatility as an outside rusher. Ben, awesome stuff, my friend. We really appreciate it. Tell all the folks about where they can find you on Twitter and everything you guys are doing over the over at the Draft Network. Absolutely, yeah. The Draft Network on Twitter is the spot. I'm on Twitter at Benjamin Solak. We have our live show going all three days. Uh, for the NFL draft, which would be a great time. So if you're following the socials, you'll see more information about that as we ramp up. And right, yeah, for me now, it's just radio hits. It's uh, podcast hits. It's counting down the days, brother. The work is in. Now the fun begins. Ben, good stuff, my friend. We'll talk to you soon, brother. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Take care, fellas. Y'all be going. You too, man. That's Benjamin Solak. And Lance, that was fun. Because, you know, we talked so much about the first-round options. I learned a lot today about some of the guys you could be talking about in rounds two and three. Yeah, it was also interesting to get his feedback on how the mock draft played out on Friday, too, in terms of how he sees those players maybe fitting in with the Giants' game plan. His point about linebacker having a lot of depth there, and I love the point, and I agree wholeheartedly, the fact that in today's NFL, you don't keep three linebackers on the field very often, so if you only need a guy to play 30-some-odd snaps, yeah, you could get somebody that could contribute in the later rounds. Maybe that impacts where the Giants say it's not worth taking a Micah Parsons early on if we don't anticipate him being at least maybe in year one on the field for X amount of snaps with Blake Martinez. All of those things, you know, we may not emphasize because we're so focused on the player, the skill set, the upside, but the dynamics, and this is where, to me, the feedback, John, from the coaching staff is important. You go to Patrick Graham, you go to Jason Garrett, and then you say, well, if we were to take this player at 11, 
How often do you see the guy on the field? How would you utilize him? What packages? And What's if the his answer impact? Is, What's his impact? You correct. Know? Yeah. If the answer is that the volume's not high, then you know that to me downgrades a player if you're not going to keep them on the field that often. No, I'm with you. And, and by the way, that's a question for cornerback two for me, right? If you're sitting there, and look, Patrick Sertan, and I'll use him as an example first. I know we're over, but I think this is a good conversation to have now. He's an outside cornerback. He can't play inside slot corner. He just can't. It's yep. not in his skill set. And Brad and Bradbury can't really do that either, by the way. So those are your two outside cornerbacks. So then you're talking about moving a guy into Dory Jackson who has played inside a little bit, a little bit. But he's primarily an outside cornerback, too, and you just paid him all this money. So then a guy you just paid all this money to, you're going to basically have him change positions and be a slot guy for you? There's a high level of risk there, right? To sure. bring in a guy and pay him off what he did good at one role and then change him and put him in a different spot. Now, again, he's shown he can do it, but it's never been his primary position. So that's why I think about cornerback two. Now, J.C. Horn's somebody that he did play the slot in college, right? If you're going to play a press man scheme and you want to put him in the slot, he can do that, and I'd be okay with that. But I think that's why I worry about corner two. And then you're taking Darnay Holmes off the field, who was a— People thought and played well last year and was a with round four pick, right? Very, very, very start around four. And you thought he would be able to, you know, be basically a virtual starter for you in the slot. So you're taking him off the field. And which, McKinney could go into the slot too, by right, the way. Right, 100%. And so can Logan Ryan, right? Yep. So, yeah, great point. So what's are you getting the value out of cornerback in that spot? Which is why, to me, I'm all in on either the— Offensive tackle, the wide receiver there. That's what I want. And if those guys are not there and there's an ability to, and again, maybe the option's not going to be there. I don't know. But if I have the ability to trade down, I feel fine about picking an edge player at 15. And we saw the mock draft. If the Giants in our mock draft, right, if they traded down even as far as 19 or 20, just in theory, to Washington or Chicago, right, before Washington and Chicago picked at 19 and 20, do you know how many edge players are off the board? You're talking about an arm mock draft? Yes. Well, I'll answer. Zero. The first edge player went to 20 to the Chicago Bears. You drafted Aziz Ojolari. So if the Giants went all the way down from 11 to 20, again, I'm just throwing out a random thing there if they want to go up for a quarterback or whatever. They could still, in theory, have their choice of the edge players in this draft. That's not a bad deal for me. If you're getting, if you know, for the Bears to go for 20 to 10, you're looking probably looking at a future first to move 10 spots. That's a that's a nice value there if you get wiped out from your offensive players at 11. That's kind of how I'm looking at it right now. Well, if the Giants, for example, in their mind, they say, hey, we want to get a pass rusher in round one. We have three guys we like, or maybe you got two guys you like, and there's not a great deal of separation. You could live with the fact, hey, if we move down five spots and we miss out on one of them, we're feeling very good about the other guy, then oh. that's where you feel good about moving down. Yeah, Lance, by the way, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, by the way. You had uh, the Vikings taking Owe at 14 That's as right. Well. I, you because had, I, I felt that, that he yep. was good length, the same length that some of the other previous Vikings guys that Mike Zimmer has had. Yes, that was one of my bold picks in the mock draft. Yeah, yes. but I think that's realistic. I think you'll probably have one, maybe two edge rushers go between 10 and 20. And look, everything I'm hearing different teams can have one of four different players as their top edge rusher. Some people are going to have Aziz Ojolari. Some people are going to have Quiddy Pay. Some people are going to have Jason Phillips. And some people could have Jason Owe. And by the way, throw in, maybe someone's going to have somebody else. You know, a Gregory sure. Rousseau. Who knows? So 
there's risk involved there. But to me, if you're wiped out of offensive players and I get an extra first-round pick and I pick Quiddy Pay instead of Micah Parsons, fine. I'm not going to lose sleep over that. I'm, I'm fine with that. Okay, cool, great. Where, where do I sign? It's all about the eye of the beholder and how you see them fitting within your scheme. That's why, you know, once again, the more and more we talk about these different layers, if I was going back to, once again, explain my rationale, I was thinking in the mind of Patrick Graham. Sure. I thought you brought up a good point, and Patrick Sertan, if you don't envision moving him around, are you maximizing the player's usage within Patrick Graham's scheme? Because it's no coincidence the secondary guys that they brought in through the draft last year and through free agency this year, while to your point, maybe not overwhelming usage in the slot, I would still argue you feel good about five or six guys that can be moved around. So why would you then give Patrick Graham a player who may be very good, but he doesn't have much wiggle room to move the player around, so he can't maximize them in the event somebody gets hurt or in the event that everybody's healthy and he wants to give snap distribution across the board. So that's when a guy like Micah Parsons came into my thinking, versatility, maybe I could tap into him in year one and we could continue to develop him. I just wonder how much is Gettleman thinking scheme or how much is he just thinking best available, best available talent? That, to me, is a, a very tough predicament to be in, especially if you have three or four guys that all fall into the former versus the latter. By the way, just to give you an idea, looking at Adoree Jackson's numbers, these are the four years of his career. Snaps at wide corner. 893, 810, 502, 105. Snaps at slot corner. 90, 87, 58, and 31. So you're looking at 80% Lance of his snaps to 85% of his snaps. You know, you go through it, it's 2,310 career snaps as an outside cornerback, 266 in the slot. So that's literally a little over one-tenth. So you're looking at about 10% of his snaps, 12% of his snaps have been taken in the slot. That's not a lot. Though it does make me feel better, though, that at least he has over 200 snaps there compared to a guy, John. Over if you were four to tell years, me, though. Over four years. No, of course. Right. Over, over a number of years. But I would take that over somebody that he may have played two or three snaps over the course of his sure. collegiate career sure. in the slot. Right. No, 100%. I'm I mean, that's a high that. projection. At least you could say not only is Adori got some exposure there, but also, most important, he has some exposure on the NFL level there, too. So that at least makes me feel a little bit more comfortable than taking a rookie who has never played there and perhaps really having to throw him into a baptism by fire scenario. No, I'm with you. I agree. I think it'll be interesting. We got a lot more to digest. And, you know, the one thing, Lance, about this Thursday press conference, and I'm sure you and Paul talk more about it tomorrow, Dave Gettleman has dropped hints before in terms of where he might be looking in the draft at these press conferences. You know, Jerry Reese used to say nothing, and I mean nothing and you walked away without a clue as to what he was thinking, Dave will sometimes drop a couple hints here or there that'll give you an idea, and I wonder if that's going to happen on Thursday. Time will tell whether or not he's going to keep something close to the vest or he's going to unveil something. I think, remember, the other thing you got to keep into consideration, John, the last few drafts, the Giants were a bit higher in the first round. So... Some of the things that maybe he said were a little bit more confident that in all likelihood that player would be there. When you're talking about 11, I would say there's a few more variables in play. 
So that could change things in terms of the amount of hints that can actually throw out there because you just don't have as good of a read on what may happen compared to previous drafts when you were a little bit higher. 100%. I'm with you, Lance. Good stuff. Lance, will see. are you on tomorrow, by the way? No, I, I am not, not on tomorrow. I think so, it's what, you and Paul, right? No? I, mean, I don't know. The, the, some I, combination. I, yes. I, I kept the schedule the same every day for like four weeks, and this week I changed it up. I forgot why. And now I have no idea who's on what days. Okay, so I'm with Paul tomorrow. That makes sense. And then I believe I'm with Fiegel because you and him switched on Thursday. So Correct. Good times. And then, we, and then we have our second mock draft on Friday, by the way. So make sure you go check that out. And Thursday's show, by the way, will come your way after the Gettleman Pettit confer- press conference. That probably won't start till around 1230 on Thursday. Just a programming note. Lance, good stuff. We'll talk to you later in the week. Sounds good. For Lance Meadow, I'm John Schmelk. Just as a reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live is part of the Giants Podcast Network presented by Investors Bank, which you can find on the which you can find the Giants.com slash podcast and the Giants Mobile app and your favorite podcast platforms. For Lance Meadow, I'm John Schmelk. We'll see you next time on Big Blue Kickoff Live.